welcome to the Clan Big Dedeker Winston. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> Uh, we got so happy to be here. Yay! Yay. Virtually, we're uh, we're really technologically advanced today. Yeah, <laughs> because Dedeker's all the way in Tokyo. No, Hong Kong. Hong Kong. I was wrong. Hong Kong. Uh, so yeah. it's awesome. Almost close, very close. We're still across the world, so it's pretty cool that we're talking. Uh, you are the author of the Smart Girls Guide to Polyamory. And you also have an amazing podcast that I've been listening to nonstop called Multiamory. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Dedeker Winston. I'm an author, speaker, educator, relationship host, podcaster, generally specializing in the subject of non-monogamy, uh, polyamory, swinging, any kind of non-traditional relationship style or alternative love. The more I'm learning about polyamory, which I've just started kind of learning about it the more I realize how vast it is and how much more like it has to do with your relationship with yourself uh then then I realize so I feel well I mean you talk about polyamory on your podcast every week and you've been doing it for three years and you never run out of things to talk about (laughs) no it's so true we we're running up against almost 150 episodes now and we still still have so much that we want to cover yeah yeah that's awesome yeah and I feel like too is like we go through these ebbs and flows of politics right now too it's like an even more interesting conversation and just never-ending stuff to talk about (laughs) oh gosh yes constantly definitely yeah so our first question we always ask our guests is are you a feminist why or why not wow what a loaded question I know it really is I always (laughs) feel like we're trapping people it is not a trap yeah what a way to Gotta start with a bang, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, I'm definitely a feminist. And it's a question that I had to tackle when I was first approaching writing this book. Because for most of my life, I identified more as a humanist. And even the idea of writing a book specifically for women that I wanted to be empowering, that I wanted to be um, you know, non-patriarchal, even coming up against that, I realized it was bringing up a lot of emotions around feminism that I had for a long time and that I kind of initially picked up on in college, which was um, initially seeing feminists as being these very zealous, um, very (laughs) self-righteous, very angry people. And, you know, I mean, that's, that was just like this false impression that I got when I was very young. And I I noticed all the jokes that were told about feminists. And it seemed like the title feminist with a capital F was often the butt of a joke. Um, at least in the community that I grew up in. And so, you know, I didn't want to be seen that way. Obviously, I I very much resonated with all the issues that feminists were tackling, but I just didn't want to be seen that way. And I didn't want to adopt that label. And so I kind of hid behind the label of humanist for a very long time until I started realizing, particularly in writing this book, that all of the humanist issues that I'm facing are feminist issues. Yeah, I, I, I was fascinated by it. That's in your sort of preface section of your book where you kind of go through this journey that you had of coming into feminism through exploring polyamory. And I think that's that's uh, really fascinating. Um, so we had a woman on a couple of months ago named Quinn who talked a little bit, she talked a little bit um, more about fetish performing and camming, but she talked a little bit about polyamory and um, something I'm learning as, as I learn more about this is that um, there seems to be a, a lot of different definitions of it floating around. 
uh, and it seems like everyone kind of creates, yeah, that everyone kind of creates their own definition, which is really kind of cool. Um, and I was wondering for you, like if you had to give a definition either of what it is or what it means for you, how would you, we're just asking you all the tough ones (laughs) right away. Wow. Yeah. Well, so to address your previous point, so I'm I'm part of this online community called the Polyamory Leadership Network. And it's, it's just like a, it's a small, like closed Google group, you know, Google forum group of maybe around 150 people. And it's all the people who are like content creators and writers and authors and speakers who talk about polyamory and non-monogamy. And there was this thread that went on for months and months and months about trying to come up with an official definition for polyamory. (laughs) Mm -hmm. People kind of thought, well, from from like a political standpoint, like we need to, we need to be united and have Mm -hmm. this unified definition and people like just arguing back and forth and it got so heated and people being like, oh, but you didn't include this part or no, you need to take out this part. And it ended up becoming this extremely long convoluted definition. And I was cracking up about it the whole time because the thing is that like, even if that's our set definition and like I put that on a dating profile, like I'm still gonna have to have a hundred hours of conversation with a potential partner around what polyamory means to me and what it means to them and what our relationship values are. Like at the end of the day, I'm still going to have to explain myself Mm -hmm. to pretty much everyone I meet. And so there is no way for us to create this nice pat little definition that's going to work, unfortunately. Um, Fortunately, it encourages discussion, which I think is something that everybody should be having when they're approaching a relationship or approaching somebody else, even if they identify as monogamous, because even monogamy has very many many different definitions and iterations. Um, Mm -hmm. So for me, it boils down to the practice of having multiple romantic partners. And that definition as simple as it is also gets me into trouble because then it's like well how do you define romance right (laughs) um what even if that construct is romantic love even a real thing we just had this fantastic philosopher carrie jenkins on our podcast um, who wrote an entire book deconstructing romantic love and so since i read that i'm like well maybe it just doesn't even exist like i don't even know what the heck i'm doing (laughs) um so um i think rather than giving a uh an exact definition of the term, I guess the way that it manifests in my life now is that I have multiple partners, mm-hmm. some of whom that I'll spend part of the year cohabiting with and some of whom I don't cohabit with. Um, and yeah, that's, that's basically it. Cool. How Simple. did you come to this in your own life that you were like, this is what works for me, this type of lifestyle? Um, I mean, I was raised very conservative Christian and raised with very traditional relationship values, particularly around marriage and sex, the things that conservative Christians tend to get really excited about. Um, (laughs) And uh, as well as the normal dose of of Disney movies that a lot of American women are are raised on. Yep. Um, Yeah. The new Beauty and the Beast was like porn for me. (laughs) The new, the new Beauty and the Beast. I was like, I just ate it up. And I'm like a woman in my 30s. And I was like, I still love this movie so much. <laughs> Stockholm yeah, Syndrome so is funny, so babe. sexy. <laughs> I'm like, I know, I know as an evolved feminist, like, why am I freaking out over this film still? But, you know, I, I did. I did. 
something yeah it's something about that got us when we were very young and it's hard to deprogram that or get away from that um yeah so I mean I was raised very traditionally and thought that I was gonna follow kind of all the traditional markers of being in a relationship I mean I signed not one but two of those pledges that I wasn't gonna have sex until I got married me too I two of them I mean I'm in breach of contract twice now. Oh, God. <laughs> um, like, it's bad news. Um, did you also have one of those rings? anyway. Did you also have one of those creepy I did, rings? I did not. I did not go the creepy ring route. Okay, I did cool. not. It's surprising <laughs> that I didn't. But. I had one. <laughs> oh, boy. I know. Sorry. I know. Sorry to take it off on a total tangent. Well. Which flavor of Christian were you? Ooh, yeah, mm. I see. Yeah, yeah. Oh, working, geez. working through some wow. real, real issues in real time right now with Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. seriously, rough mm. stuff. I was raised evangelical. Also, that's just kind of whole other, whole yeah. other. Yeah, fire and brimstone. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but this interview is not about that. <laughs> it's about <laughs> relationships and polyamory. So. When I was in, so, but, but the thing is that as I was growing up, you know, when I became a teenager and started getting into my early twenties and I was, you know, in that phase of exploring what adult relationships even are and figuring out who I am and what my sexuality is, I found constantly I'd get into the cycle of where I'd be in a monogamous relationship. I'd be very happy with the person that I was with. And then I would get really interested in somebody else and not just like passing crush or just, oh, I find this person attractive, like straight up, like, oh no, I'm really interested in what it would be like to be with this other person. But I feel like I'm in, still in love with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whoever it is that I'm with. And everything in society has taught me that if I'm truly in love with somebody, then I won't be interested in anybody else. And so there must be something wrong with me is basically the place that I would come back to. And so either I would fall into like some kind of horrible self-loathing depression, pretty much convinced that I was broken or that I was wrong or that I was sinful or that I was evil, or I would do what most people do, which is, you know, kind of some overlapping serial monogamy, which is where I break up with the person I was with in order to explore a relationship with somebody else, which is a very common experience for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, Only to have that same cycle repeat. Exactly. Yeah. Same exact thing would happen all over again. And then finally, in my early 20s, um, it was starting to happen again that there was somebody that I was working with on set who I was really, really attracted to, really interested in, but I was still quite happy in my current relationship. And I just like did not want to go into the self-loathing depressive cycle again. I didn't want to go into that cycle. I didn't want to cheat. I didn't want to break up with my boyfriend. Like all of the options available to me, available to me just seemed shitty. And so I was venting to my best friend about it and he suggested like, oh, have you tried opening up your relationship? Um, and I was actually kind of offended when he suggested <laughs> that um, because, because uh, at that point I thought that open relationships were for people who were sex addicts or for people who weren't actually committed or for people who didn't actually love the partner that they were with. And so the idea of having a non-monogamous relationship with somebody that I also loved and cared about it just it didn't compute for me but that did inspire inspire me to at least start googling and at least start reading and I started just voraciously devouring all the content that I could um because online you know I mean back then there weren't as many resources as there are now there weren't as many talk 
many people talking about their experience with non-traditional relationships as there are now, you know, so I had to dig through like old live journal posts and, and <laughs> forum journal. posts buried deep in the internet. Um, but I was just so amazed because people were talking about this thing called polyamory where not only were they doing it, but it was sustainable and it was viable and everybody was consenting to it and everybody was quite happy with it. And it totally just blew the doors off my reality. It was this total paradigm shift. And so once I had kind of exhausted myself reading all the books I could and all the articles and everybody's live journal posts and all the forum posts, I all but created a PowerPoint presentation to give to my boyfriend at the time <laughs> to try to to try to sell him on the idea. And um, that's awesome. He reluctantly, agree- he reluctantly agreed. And um, did he agree right away? Went, uh, or did it take him some time? I, it took him some time, but like only a couple days. Hmm, wow. And um, well, uh, before you say, wow, I have to say that it was horrible. Like it went, oh, it went horribly. Cool. Like, <laughs> we barely, we barely, we barely talked about it. Like we barely talked about what it is that we wanted or what it is that we expected. And we were bad communicators as it was. We were so young and didn't know what we want. And so it all kind of crashed and burned, but even in the crashing and burning process, I, I still felt, oh my goodness, like this is something that satisfies me and makes me feel happier than anything else has before you know even when it's bad and even when I'm having to learn these very painful lessons I lessons I still know that this is something that I want to try to get good at Mm -hmm. and so when that particular relationship ended then it was just this quest of like okay so that was like the first experiment was a failure but even though I learned a lot of things and so now how do I get good at this like how do I actually make this work Mm -hmm. and so yeah so that was uh, the inception, I suppose, in my mm. own life, at least. What, yeah. what was it like sort of coming out to your friends and family about it? Holy, um, I mean, I was living in LA for most of my 20s, most of this time when I was exploring and coming out to my friends was a slow drip wasn't that big of a deal I mean in LA there's now this growing burgeoning polyamorous community and people are much more open-minded and people are trying many different things when it comes to relationships and sex and so of course in the dating process it was hard I had a lot of people who would reject me or a lot Mm -hmm. of partners who were put off by it who couldn't handle it and so that was hard but ultimately it started becoming a little bit part of my identity and you know the people around me just grew to accept that with my family it was a whole other story because at the time that I came out my mother in particular was still um she wasn't as hardcore conservative Christian as she was when I was growing up but she was still Christian like still still brand loyal to Jesus as it were. <laughs> um and and so I had to have this conversation with her that was a double whammy where not only did I come out as polyamorous, but it meant I also had to come out as not being a Christian anymore. Oof, the conversation well, yeah. that she and I it's a double had whammy. not exactly had. Yeah, yeah, it was rough. It was rough. But <laughs> I'm very happy to say that, you know, that that conversation with my mother was was tough and we both cried, but we got through it. And not long after that conversation, she came down to LA and visited and she got to meet 
couple of my partners and for her getting to actually meet people and see that this isn't some weird crazy sex cult that <laughs> actually my partners are are charming attractive people who are caring for me that really helped to start the process of turning things around for her mm-hmm, um yeah. and and now I'm happy to say that uh you know it's a subject that she and I can talk about pretty matter of factly and openly um and with the rest of my family, um, it's, it's, you know, people don't understand it. They think it's strange. They don't quite know how to talk about it or ask about it. But I'm happy to say that I'm in a situation where I don't feel like anybody loves me any less. Mm-hmm. I didn't get kicked out of the family. People are just confused, mostly confused right. and initially worried about whether I was happy or not or whether I was being taken advantage of or not. But now enough time has gone by that I think those initial worries have been quelled and now people are just confused and I can I can live you can with deal that. with the confusion <laughs> yeah I can, I can deal with that um was your first poly experience was that kind of an aha moment for you and your first successful one I guess I should say or was there were there some unsuccessful ones along the way uh before you're like oh, oh I certainly. see how to make this work Definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, I'm still having some unsuccessful experiences that are teaching me, oh, this is the way to actually make it work better. It's always a learning process. Um, I would say for the first year or two that, you know, after my last monogamous relationship had ended and I was, I guess, quote unquote, single and, and trying to figure out what it is that I wanted, I did go through what I call my trial and error period where I wasn't sure, you know, it, it, obviously this really resonated with me, but I had a lot of doubt and a lot of that came from the people around me. Um, a lot of people in particular theorize like, oh, maybe this is just a phase. Maybe you just need to get all this casual sex out of your system. Maybe you haven't found the right person yet. Once you find the right person, then you won't want to do this anymore. Maybe you have daddy issues. Maybe this is something psychological, you know, um, all kinds of theories because a woman can't want I know, what she wants. Right? Each one of those <laughs> things you just mentioned is so loaded. Um, your book, I didn't get to finish the whole thing, but I got through a solid chunk and it is so fun. It's so easy to read. It feels really empowering and um, inclusive. And one of the things that I was struck the most by and maybe uh, (laughs) a little frustrated with because of things about me is how much self-work you talk about. And all of that, you you have exercises with each chapter and they're very uh, aligned with examining yourself, examining the the societal constructs that have been put on women, especially uh, all of our lives. And it's really, really challenging stuff. Um, you know, part of me would love for someone to tell me that, that polyamory is just this easy thing where you can like have your cake and eat it too. And you don't have to do any self-work because uh, you're just going to have a lot of fun. And I'm realizing, no, it's actually really hard. And I was wondering if I'm, you could speak about no, that. I'm not, I'm, not the per- I'm not the person who's going to tell you that. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> um, could you speak a little about the sort of self-work that you think is important to go into it? And for any of our listeners who might be, um, interested in maybe broaching this with themselves or with their partners or, or sort of transitioning to a different relationship model? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that self-work and 
and deep self-work is necessary for so many things other than just polyamory. I think for relationships at all, we need to do that intense self-reflection and get to know what it is that makes us tick, both positively and negatively, you know, both figuring out what is it that I want? What turns me on in bed? What do I want in a partner that I'm going to have with me for the rest of my life? What do I want in a partner that I'm going to have with me maybe for one night? Um, uh, what does monogamy mean to me? What does sex mean to me? What does consent mean to me? You know, these are things that are so important for us to examine regardless of what it is that we're tackling. And I think for me, I found that it's just been this constant deconstruction process of really being willing to take and examine absolutely everything that I've been taught by my culture and by my society and by my peers and willing to hold it under this kind of more scrutinizing gaze. And I think that um, that's also part of like the, like the process of, of becoming a feminist. Yeah, um, totally. That's all, that's all about deconstructing and shedding and and peeling away the layers of what it is that we've been taught and trying to examine like, well, what's really valuable to me and what's really not, what's really healthy for me and healthy for people as a whole and what's not, you know? And so I'm sorry to get all like deep and Zen about it. Please but, do. Awesome. But the thing is <laughs> that it, it really has to be this constant process of checking in with yourself and figuring out, is this actually what I want? And uh, why do I want the things that I want? And I mean, that that question in itself can get into full on like twilight zone levels of, yeah. of trying to figure out like, you know, the things that I want, are, do they actually come from somewhere inside of me? Or have I been told that I want this? And Or is it because right. somebody else has this? And so I think that I want it. And mm -hmm. that can be anything from from money to possessions to a particular body type to a particular type of relationship. Um, so I guess just the takeaway from that is like take a machete to everything that you think that you are and that you want. <laughs> but you break it down in in such great questions and exercises at the end of every chapter that I that exactly what you said I think it's like productive for anybody to take the time to answer like even man woman whatever being like what were your first visions or experiences of romance and like thinking of like okay there's so there's so much that's put on us of like what we think that is and what is romantic love and are women entitled to you know want sex or desire this like you break it down really simply in but in very questions that make you think really hard about what do I want and what have I been told that I want in a really powerful way well, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's awesome for for anybody who might be confused or just still still trying to find themselves in what they want, which I think is like a lifelong process. It's productive to go yeah, through those exercises. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. I mean, my my hope would be that honestly, if somebody reads through the book and at the end of the book they decide that very consciously that they want to be monogamous then I think the book's been a success. Um, you know, my book was not made with this intention of trying to convert everybody to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, alternative relationships or to casting off what it is that they, that they think that they want. But if after you've examined your desires and you still come back around to like, no, actually, this is what I want. Like, I think that's a very respectable choice. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 
Um, so this is a question that uh, my boyfriend wanted me to specifically ask you, which I feel like is a question we get, a, or you guys, you in the poly community, and I, because I feel like you've addressed this on one of the episodes I've listened to. But his biggest question was, how do you have time for it all? <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> maybe it's a patronizing question. I don't know. <laughs> but it does seem like... No, it's... It, exhausting. Although... What, what isn't exhausting? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense. People ask that question because I think people think in their minds like, okay, so if I think about having a monogamous partner and so that's a person that pretty much I spend all my free time with, maybe I live with them, maybe I spend every holiday with them, maybe I'm out every weekend with them, uh, maybe that you know I take them with me to my parents, or like whenever I hang out with my friends, we're always together. We're becoming known as that couple where we have like a weird couple name, like Brangelina or whatever. Um, so people think of that experience of being in a relationship, and then they're like, okay, so then polyamory must be that times two or times three, and that's ridiculous. Like I don't actually have that kind of time. Um, and the reality is a little bit different, obviously, as human beings, just our time in general is so different and varies from individual to individual based on what your work schedule is like, based on what your social schedule is like, based on how much time you need for yourself to take care of yourself. And so for me, I found it becomes a process of just being very honest with people about how much time you have, actually, mm -hmm. and how much time you're willing to give, because when you're in this model where, well, I don't have one partner who's just my one partner. And so all of my free time belongs to them. I'm choosing where my time goes. And so my time goes to the relationships that need it and merit it. Kind of the same thing as the way we, we manage our time when it comes to developing relationships with our friends. Right. You know, some friends take more of our time, some take less, some take more of our time for a particular period. Some friendships, we don't spend any time together, but then when we do get together once a year, it's like we pick up right where we left off. Mm -hmm. And the same thing applies to romantic relationships. And obviously, some people need more time than others. Some people will need more time when they're going through a rougher phase in their life. Some people don't need that much time. You know, if we go back to uh, the really popular love language theory, for some people, quality time is their love language. That's how they feel the most affection. That's how they feel loved. And for some people, it's not. And so it's another self-awareness question of coming down to like, okay, actually, like how much time do I need in a romantic relationship in order to feel like it's, it's sustainable and it's viable and it's making everybody happy? How much time do I need for myself, not with any partners and not with any friends in order for me to be happy? Um, so yeah, so it, and then at the same time, when you have partners who are also getting their needs for quality time met with other partners, it's kind of like everything's a little bit more outsourced. The chain right. of need is a that actually bit more sounds really out. nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can outsource some of your responsibilities based on how much you've got to offer at that time. My mind is like just going to spreadsheets, which I know is like real messed up. But I'm like, I'm like literally, like as you were talking, I was like, oh, you could make spreadsheets for that, and I'm like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dedeker said she made a PowerPoint, so maybe your brains are similar. <laughs> yeah, I'm someday I'm sure there'll be an app for that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the coolest things that I learned listening to your podcast and one of the things that really um, hit me the most and uh, sort of was able to, to reframe 
the idea because there's so much stigma about polyamory. I think I think for me when I hear poly anything poly, I immediately think of polygamy, which has all of these really negative connotations in it. It it just there are there are so many stigmas that are just based on nothing and mean and based and on a man controlling ladies. I think I think that the words are like so close that you're, yeah. you're you just you like, go there. Yeah, yeah. But I think one of the things that was really powerful that I, I heard listening on your podcast was just that um, the idea of if you love someone, not wanting to limit their future experiences. Um, because falling in love mm-hmm. or like having like a super fun, sexy encounter or, you know, the, the dance you do with someone before you have sex the first time, it's so fun. It's like one of the best parts of being alive. Mm-hmm. And I've always really felt that uh, when you get into a relationship and you get past that time that, that, you know, you're kind of sacrificing that and the idea that, no, if you love someone, you can allow them to experience those moments again and again and again. Uh, that was a really cool frame to 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 put everything in. Yeah. So uh, the question is, oh, yeah. how, I didn't how have a question. Do we, uh, how do we get past the stigmas of polyamory for for people who who kind of judge it extremely? How do we help them get past the stigmas? Oh gosh. I mean, they're obviously. There are people who are working very hard to generate awareness and generate education. Obviously, myself being one of them. That's mm-hmm. part of why we created the podcast, why I wrote the book. Um, what we saw with the gay rights movement was this push towards we have to make the conversation about love. We have to make people know that these are human relationships where love is involved. We have to say, like, look, we're just like you. We want to get married. We want to raise kids. We want to be with the person that we love. We want the person that we love to be able to visit us in the hospital. We want these very basic human rights. It's about love. And I think I see that a lot in the polyamory movement of people really reassuring, like it's about love. Like we want all the same things. It's about creating these emotionally intense, meaningful, deep, committed relationships. Like it's about love. And I do think that's a good thing to say. However, what I do see is kind of an undercurrent of sex negativity in that as well, because there's kind of this implied sense of like, well, we're about love. We're not like those weirdos over there having casual sex, (laughs) you know, kind of the same thing that happened in the gay rights movement, that it was about marriage rights, but it wasn't about talking about the bathhouse scene or about hookup culture, which there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with casual sex and there's nothing wrong with short-term relationships. Um, so that's what I see. I still think the same thing is probably going to be effective of making sure that we focus on the love, focus on people who want parenting rights for, you know, for multi-partner parenting households. Um, when I was writing the book, for me, that pathway came up a little bit differently. And it, and it came in my decision to write a book aimed at women and, and written with women in mind, because I know that, you know, systems of oppression and systems of limitation are also carried forth through women you know it's it's not just about men holding a gun to a the to a woman's head and forcing her to do something like mm-hmm. women pass on these unhealthy things as well that's why we have such a culture of slut shaming yeah. you you called it in that 
in at least pop culture, most of our examples of multi-partner relationships are things like, you know, polygamy, where it calls to mind, uh, you know, bearded men named Ezekiel with a bunch <laughs> of child brides. Yeah, it, yeah. it calls to mind, you know, um, people building ha- harems or people having multiple wives where it's this really horrible, manipulative, controlling thing. We don't have this established cultural model that's empowering for women. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it was my hope that by being able to demonstrate that this is something that women actively choose and that women enjoy and that women actually can stand to find a lot of autonomy and a lot of independence in this particular kind of relationship style, that that would help to get the ball rolling on more acceptance as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have, either, have either of you watched Casual on Hulu? I watched the first season, but not the I haven't, no. Um, I, I, it just came to mind because uh, it's about two Casual. siblings and their, <laughs> and their kid, but the parents um, are polyamorous. I don't know if they ever use the term explicitly, um, but it's implied, and it's really uh, taken to have caused a they they make it so that a lot these these two siblings are extremely dysfunctional and the family's extremely dysfunctional and they contribute mm-hmm. they seem to contribute a lot of that dysfunction to the polyamorous lifestyle of um, their parents they of blame their a lot. parents yeah yeah and I as I was I was just thinking of what a disservice I think that's doing on a show that I think is like pretty a pretty smart show which is about casual relationships yeah. so that's like messed up that they're like putting mm. that on <laughs> yeah it's yeah. the idea that they were like you know in the 60s hippie flower children free love um but that there, there's really no responsibility or um, maturity in those relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, just struck me as a bummer just now that that especially that's when there. Um, I feel like uh, the poly experience is almost never represented in in television at least. So it's like what a missed opportunity to have kind of like created yeah. a positive. Yeah, yeah. Do you? Yeah, uh, no, that, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you have any examples um, of when you've seen it represented positively in pop culture? Um, it's interesting because a couple months ago, we on on my podcast, we did kind of a survey of representations of, of poly and non-monogamy in media. And we basically like t- the three of us took a whole day just in our pajamas, like sipping mimosas on the couch, just watching <laughs> all these movies and all these TV shows and web series, like everything anybody had ever mentioned, maybe talks about polyamory or demonstrates polyamory. Um, and the overarching theme I see is it's definitely still othered a little <laughs> bit. It's still not considered the norm. It's still held up as like a little bit weird, but we're starting to see more representations where it's at least not demonized yeah. so much. It's still a little titillating, a little exciting. Um, it can still be a good plot twist. It can still drive whole series. I mean, right now there's a series called You, Me, Her that focuses on um, a married couple that open up their relationship to add a, a bisexual woman to it, which already has so many issues with it. But But <laughs> it's a step it's a step in the right direction of portraying alternative relationship styles as a choice, as an option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, ha- have you seen the totally as something deviant? Have you seen the unicorn? I think it's called the unicorn. The web series is out right now about the woman who 
breaks up and she decides uh, to... Unicorn, Unicorn Land? Yeah. Right? It's interesting because I feel like until I came across that web series, I, I didn't know that term was was used so often. But um, that series oh, yeah. is like obviously from her point of view and she's new to the world. But it I think it's pretty respectful and, inter- and interesting for sure. It's a good watch. <laughs> That's great. That's excellent. I mean, I definitely what I would like to see is still a lot of the portrayals are doing things like that where it's, it's kind of focusing on the experience of the um of the couple so i do appreciate that she created something where it was focusing on the experience of the third of the unicorn um so far it still has been really focused around couples or married couples opening up still a lot of the media representation even in interviews with people still focuses on married couples opening up like it still kind of prioritizes the couple as being the most important thing there has yet to be a lot of depictions of multi-partner relationships where it's a little bit more of an even playing field as opposed to something that was done to kind of enhance the marriage but I think we're I think we're getting close to seeing that yeah yeah could you talk a little bit about this idea of and I and I feel like it's a little controversial or people have different feelings about it of having a, a primary partner versus partners on the periphery? Yeah, that's, um, it is controversial. It's controversial even within the polyamory community. Um, I'm very much of the school of thought of avoiding the label of primary and of avoiding having these very strict hierarchies in your relationships um, for a lot of reasons, you know, not the least of which was I myself self got very burned um trying out that model and Mm. it's very common because it feels close to monogamy and so for people who are new to this it feels safer to be like okay well I will pick one person who will be my most important person and that person will pick me as their most important person and we'll know that we're safe we love each other and that we're safe exactly Mm -hmm. that we have someone to take to all the family functions and to be with at every holiday and so we know that we have that one partner that we can kind of cling to you can stay and then everyone else a little bit more exactly it's a lot easier to stay closeted and then everyone else can kind of be an add-on and that model works for some people but i found that in many situations it just creates this weird power dynamic and that's not to say that, uh, you know, if you have multiple partners, that everything needs to be strictly equal, you know, like you don't have to do the spreadsheet where <laughs> you make sure everybody's getting the same chunk of time. Um, obviously, there's going to be an organic variation in priority and what is happening in your life and what's happening in everybody else's lives and what everybody needs. But I'm of the mind that it's healthier to avoid having these really strict hierarchies that are inflexible because usually it manifests in you know, the primary couple will set a list of rules that apply to all the other relationships. And that means that they are making decisions about relationships that they're not even in. Maybe they're not even in yet. You know, it just starts to get real sticky. And so people do cling to it because it feels safe. But I know with all my clients and anyone who asks me about it, I really encourage them to try to break out of that or at least try to think about it a little bit differently. When you're doing your work with uh, couples or, or groups who are involved or thinking about polyamory, is there, are, are there benchmarks? And I feel like the answer is going to be no, because life is not black and white, Angela. It is gray. Um, but is there, how, how do people know that they're ready to make the leap? Is there a way to know? If you feel that polyamory is part of your identity, 
that's not necessarily something that you can draw just from your desire to have multiple partners or an interest in having multiple partners because I think that that's that's kind of a broader experience that human beings feel but it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be polyamorous but maybe they are attracted to multiple people that really it lies more in how you feel about a partner having other partners that's more the litmus test around how ready you are or how much this is going to jive with you as Mm -hmm. it were because obviously it's really easy to do the like selfish thing of fantasies of where I get to have as many beautiful wonderful partners as I want but they're all devoted to me and nobody (laughs) else gets to see anybody else so like I don't I don't have to feel threatened I don't have to feel insecure like it's all perfect it's easy to want that and it's easy to to pursue that but it's not so easy to pursue something where everyone actually has equal opportunity equal access to partners so that's usually a question that I pose to people to examine if they're considering this. In um, When I'm working with couples, often couples will have that very common experience of, oh, we want to open up our relationship, but just to add a third, mm-hmm. usually just to add like a, a hot woman, bisexual probably. woman. Yeah. The unicorn. With us. <laughs> yeah, usually. Usually yeah. the unicorn. Nine mm-hmm. times out of ten, it's the unicorn. Um, with couples like that, I will say that I don't have anything against triad relationships. I've been in triad relationships myself, both with you know two women and a man and with two men and myself, and they're fantastic. However, it is extra important in triads to avoid pre-existing power dynamics, and that's basically impossible to avoid yeah. when you're a couple opening up to add a third. That sounds and impossible. And so, yeah, so the litmus test I always gave couples is to ask each half of the couple to kind of close their eyes and imagine their partner going on a date or having sex with this third person, but where they themselves are not involved. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine your partner having an independent relationship with this third person? And how does that make you feel? And if you're feeling like sick to your stomach and you're feeling like I'm only okay with this, like I'm only okay with my partner having sex with this person if I'm there too, then you may not be ready for a triad. Maybe you're ready to like go to a swingers party and find someone to have like a quick threesome with, right? but you're not maybe so ready for the triad that you think you are. So those are usually the two litmus tests that I fall back on most often to help people evaluate how ready they are or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I just thought this is like slightly off topic, but I was just so fascinated by your episode on the red pill, uh, your podcast episode on oh, the God. red pill. Yeah. <laughs> but what I appreciated it, what I appreciate it, appreciated about it so much was that you guys took the time to delve in and try and understand that perspective real quick Lindsay give our listeners a a one two three on the the red pill is like I mean I haven't done enough research on it I'm gonna watch the documentary I haven't seen it yet but there's a documentary on Hulu right now entitled the red pill and it's kind of like I would say almost a movement in response to the rise of whatever wave of feminism we're in right now of men feeling a bit like threatened by that and creating their own rules and definitely a lot of control rules and what they think is okay um, to do with to do with women and and uh, possibly control women and there's a lot about dating in their stuff but there's also other stuff that you guys do, uh, dove into that they're also like men's rights advocates for when you split up with your primary partner, the woman always gets the child. So they advocate like, uh, why can't the man be equal and have equal rights to childcare and all, all that too. So they do have like some goals that seem worthy, but overall their goals are like pretty intense and fairly anti-feminist. But 
I just like so appreciated that you took the time to like understand their point of view, number one, and <laughs> it was fascinating to me. Like, I don't know if I would have been so generous to like have dived, done such a deep dive. But my main question is, is do you think that this is like the opposite response or the opposite movement of polyamory towards how ingrained monogamy is into our lives? It's, it kind of seems like it's like the other extreme of like being like, hey, yeah, monogamy I, is I, like... I, Definitely, definitely. I do think there's some seeds of that in there. And that exploration started because I had somebody who was a friend of mine, just totally out of the blue, suddenly confront me on Facebook, asking all these questions about if I'd seen the red pill or if I knew about the red pill. And suddenly, basically decided to like pick a fight with me out of like completely unprovoked to talk about like feminism and polyamory and stuff like that. And he had made all these claims that like, oh, no, no, like polyamory is totally okay in the red pill movement. And obviously my lived experience was like, uh, I mean, most of my experiences of reactions of people who identify as red pillars to polyamory is not exactly friendly or supportive. And But I was curious, you know, I did want to know like, okay, but maybe I shouldn't just take all this based on just what I've heard about the red pill movement. Like I'm actually going to go wade through the swamp that is the forum that is the that is the the subreddit i'm actually gonna read their little like ebook that they put out that was kind of a collection of all the kind of all the popular threads from that subreddit and actually get to the bottom of what is it that these people are trying to say and the unfortunate thing is the fact that there are some serious and legitimate issues that are kind of wrapped up it's like I think on the podcast, I made this metaphor that it's like this burrito that has some good things in it, but it's wrapped up in a tortilla that's made out of shit. (laughs) And so I I don't really want it. (laughs) Um, Because yeah, there, there are things like custody rights. There are things like the way, the ways we treat male victims of domestic violence or male victims of rape or male victims of assault um, that we do treat very differently and it's like oh yeah that is a discrepancy like let's actually talk about that but it's wrapped up in not in oh we need to talk about these things we need to be aware about these things we need to figure out solutions to to these things it's wrapped up in women are to blame for these things and women need to have less and I think those are things that could very healthily be separated but in the red pill movement they are not unfortunately yeah I guess this question is almost twofold do you find men who are coming to non-monogamy in a positive way have a decided a decidedly different experience than women coming to non-monogamy or is it a lot of commonalities um there are different experiences for sure I think that for men Men, at least straight men, often, you know, straight cisgender men often have the experience of finding it very difficult to find partners. Um, And that can kind of operate twofold. So kind of in the same way that women experience a lot of slut shaming if they're doing things that are anormative with their sex life or their love life. Men get the other side of that, which is, you know, the the double standard of, of men get praised for sleeping around, they get praised for being very sexually active and virile, they get praised for having a lot of partners. However, I think men who explore polyamory find that that works against them because if they're trying to court someone or trying to pursue someone, you know, pursue a woman who's maybe not familiar with polyamory, she'll see him and think like, oh, he's just using this as another way to bang a bunch of chicks. I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So what I found, at least in the dating experience, that men have a lot harder time finding partners. And women have a hard time finding partners, too, who are not just people interested in casual sex. Right. Um, I was going to ask that next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's, that, that's what I found. I found that, like, men kind of, once they've found someone, and, of course, this is just speaking about heterosexual pairings. It's, it's a whole different game once you get out of the cisgender and out of, you know, out of heterosexuality. Um, that what I've seen that once men find a female partner, who's on board, who's seen that he's not just a, a dickhead trying to sleep around, that, you know, then those female partners are more likely to stick around, but that for women, it's a lot of waiting through, like, okay, sure, I have tons of male, male-bodied people who just want to sleep with me, but as far as finding somebody who will actually be with me in the long term, that's been a little bit harder. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, it's interesting that there's preconceived no- notions on both sides. That we have to get around. <laughs> Does it make it? But I did want. I did want to. Oh, sorry. I just really quickly wanted to take a step back. Um, yeah. Because I realized I didn't. I didn't fully address your question about uh, the red pill movement and culturally ingrained ingrained monogamy. Because I do think that is a part of the movement in that it's like they've recognized that yeah, being force fed monogamy and being force fed marriage and being force fed uh, this myth of you know, the one or the soulmate, um, that that's bullshit. Like they right. recognize that part, but their response to it is, so that means just bang as many chicks as you want. Don't get attached. <laughs> don't pay for anything. You know, that that's the solution to it, uh, because they still are operating on this dichotomy that it's either lifelong married monogamy mm-hmm. or it's, or it's hopping from bed to bed. So even though they've recognized that, yes, we're playing this game and a lot of it's bullshit, um, it's like they're still choosing to play the game just in a very weird way rather yeah. than trying they're, to they're, rewrite the Their dialogue but, yeah. feels a lot like that book, that I think, called The Game that came out like early 2000s. Yes. It, some of their dialogue feels yes. like very similar to that of being like, this is how to manipulate the situation to your advantage type of thing. If you play mm-hmm. by these rules. <laughs> yeah, it's, fa- it's yeah. fascinating. It's yeah, fascinating. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, and and something that I realized when we were recording that podcast is, you know, they, they call themselves the red pill movement. It's supposed to be this reference to the matrix of, you know, you take the red pill and then you see the matrix and then you're a badass and then you can do Kung Fu and all these things. And the, But the thing is that, like, they're not like Neo in the Matrix, like they're the bad guy in the Matrix, the bad guy from the first movie who knows that the Matrix, knows that things aren't real. You know, he has that scene where he says, I know that this fake isn't real, but he still chooses to Mm. sell everybody out. He still chooses the stake, you know? And that's what I see the red pill movement being. It's like, oh yeah, we see the game, we see the game, but we're still going to play the game just in this particular way. If one has taken the step, is is exploring polyamory, um, it seems a lot easier to do an internet dating approach because you can kind of put it on your profile put it out there um is is there a way to navigate it out in the wild too how would you suggest uh people go about that um usually i recommend people but if you are out in the wild (laughs) and meeting somebody or start chatting with somebody or whatever try to bring it up as early as possible um and that's very hard. And I, I know it's very hard because I, I struggled with it for a long time because rejection can be a very scary and very painful thing. And it can be tempting to be like, 
I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till we've gone on a couple dates, wait till they get a good first impression of me. And then I'll kind of ease them into it. Let them know that, you know, maybe that I have another partner, maybe that I live with somebody, or maybe that I, this is, this is just what I'm interested in as far as relationships go. And I've pretty much always see that, seen that backfire because unfortunately we're still operating in this model where everyone's assuming the, the norm of monogamy, right. everyone that you meet on the street, chances are they're assuming that the norm is either going to be, okay, we're going to date and then we're going to become monogamous and exclusive, or we're going to date and we're going to be fuck buddies. And that's where it's going to end. Um, and that's what most people are operating under as far as unspoken assumptions. And so the earlier you can address those assumptions, the earlier you can put yourself out there and be clear about what it is that you want and what it is that your life is, the better it's going to go for you. But that is also setting yourself up for some rejection and some rejection to your face but Oof. ultimately you didn't want to be with that person anyway yeah <laughs> yeah 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 it seems yeah. it's I mean it just seems yeah. like you know if you're dating in general like the first order of business is hopefully to be honest <laughs> it's like it seems like a good rule of like dating period <laughs> yeah. yeah it's hard yeah, though it's so. hard. and that's why I come back around to the, to the yeah that's why I come back around to the fact that even if you're wanting monogamy still to be honest about what that actually means to you because to some people monogamy means um uh, it's okay for me to make out with someone else at parties but not have sex with them and to some people monogamy means you don't even look at another person and it's not in my presence some people monogamy means the occasional strip club's okay and for some people monogamy means you go to a strip club and we're over with you know and so I think people still need to have those kind of honest conversations regardless of what it is that they're looking for. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> what are the biggest mistakes you find that new newly polyamorous individuals make? Oh, the biggest mistakes and really common ones are things that we've actually addressed already. Things like setting up a super strict hierarchy mm. kind of in the belief that that's going to save me from discomfort um a really common one that couples make is thinking like oh if we're dating or sleeping with the same person at the same time then no one will feel jealous uh which is often a rude awakening for a lot of people um a common mistake that i see is people this also happens a lot with couples but it's couples who agree to kind of what i refer to as a one penis policy kind of arrangement (laughs) which is where it's like, we'll open up, but, but only for the purpose of the woman sleeping with other women. And that's it. That's the only thing that's okay. Um, and often people get a rude awakening when they find like, oh, actually female, female relationships are legitimate and they're a real thing. Yeah. I was going to say inherent in that is that that's somehow less than a a heterosexual relationship. Yeah, so that's a really common one is is people not often straight men not realizing, oh, like if my female partner has a relationship with a woman, it could be just as intense and just as threatening as if she's in a relationship with a man. Um, that's a really common one. Um, things like just not talking enough, not not being direct enough, not being clear enough, trying to operate under assumptions are really common. Yeah, I'd say. So those are are the really common stumbling blocks that I see. Since you've become polyamorous, have you ever regretted the decision to do it or wanted to opt out? I wouldn't say I've regretted. There was one time that I tried opting out and it was 
towards the tail end of my trial and error period that I was telling you about earlier, um, mm-hmm. I had met this gorgeous Colombian man who mm-hmm. was basically, um, he was like the very image of my dream man. Like <laughs> I was so physically attracted to him and like just so head over heels for him. And, and even better, he was head over heels for me. He was really into me. And I had this thought of like, okay, well, every, every, everyone has told me like, if I actually find someone that I'm in love with, then monogamy will be easier or I'll want to stop dating multiple partners. And so I thought like, well, if there's ever a time I'm going to try monogamy, it may as well be in this context where I'm with someone who I think is like my dream partner is someone who walked out of my fantasy, someone who I, I can't even imagine finding anyone better than this person. And so I, and he also wanted to be monogamous. And so I said, okay, fine. Like I'll, I'll give it a try. And like, I only lasted a couple months. Like it, it drove me crazy. Like yeah. it, even when I was with someone that I was so attracted to and there was so much chemistry and we got along so well and I was so in love with this person and still even in the midst of being in love with this person like I broke up with him Hmm. because I just it wasn't it wasn't me you know and so that experience was really valuable to teach me like it doesn't matter who it is you know it it isn't a matter of me just having not found my soulmate yet Mm -hmm. you know this is more of part of me that it is something that's based on just external circumstances of who it is that I happen to be with. Oh, I thought this was an interesting reaction that I had in myself um, in listening to your podcast and talking about poly groups raising children. Um, I found myself uh, immediately like something in me reacted really negatively against that because it's so different from the way society's constructed. Although I have I've had many different sets of parents. My parents have been divorced and remarried Mm. multiple times. So I have been raised by a flock of people anyway. They just didn't really (laughs) like each other very much. Um, (laughs) And I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering about how, how the polyamory community goes about child rearing because because the gay community has had so much pushback against and, and still in in other countries it's even worse but not being able to adopt and all of these absurd insane practices um and, and prejudices um how how do we how do we go about combating that um it's interesting that you uh that you picked up on that because i think that I think that custody rights are going to be the thing that launches non-monogamous relationships into mainstream focus. Oh, interesting. It's going to make it a talking point because with gay rights, it was around marriage specifically. Mm -hmm. Obviously uh, gay rights is not limited to just marriage. There's many more rights for gay people than just marriage rights. But that was the thing that became the issue that took it as far as it went with transgender rights. It's about things like bathroom bills and just like Mm -hmm. bodily autonomy and the right to decide one's identity um and I think that with polyamory and non-monogamy it's going to be custody rights because there is so much blowback against it because you know the main issue facing the polyamorous community is people getting their kids taken away is things where like a vindictive ex-partner it's so heartbreaking but things like where a vindictive ex-partner sees that they're that their ex is in the polyamorous relationship with multiple partners and that's enough 
leverage to take to court. And for a judge who has no idea, who just thinks this is some kind of weird kinky sex thing and this can't be safe or healthy for a child, of course they're gonna award custody rights to the other partner. And so fortunately, there has been some work on that front. Um, Dr. Elizabeth Schaff is this researcher who she has done 15, uh, going on 20 years now of research specifically into poly families, specifically into families where there are children involved and either there are multiple partners living in the home or there's one parent living in the home who happens to have multiple partners or it, it looks like a two parent family, but both mom and dad happen to have partners elsewhere. And those partners are also part of the child rearing process. And she did years and years and years of qualitative research and you know, tons of interviews with all these families. And she came to the conclusion that at the end of the day, kids that are raised in polyamorous families fare just about as well as kids who are raised in two parent families. Sure. The same way that we found that kids who are raised by gay parents turn out just about the same as kids who are raised by straight parents. The only difference being both with children raised by um, same-sex parents and children raised in multi-parent households, the only disadvantage that they tend to get is um, criticism from everyone else. Right. That's the one thing that they face by, by being raised in a family that's non-normative. So that's kind of the one thing that they have going against them. But then other than that, you know, if you raise a child around adults who are loving and who are invested in, in taking care of the child, then the child's going to grow up and probably turn out to be just fine, or at least with the same issues that a child raised by two parents is going to yeah. grow up yeah. with. Yeah. 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 And so, so Elizabeth Steph, she's doing a lot of good work. She, and I think the thing that helps is that she herself is not polyamorous. Mm-hmm. And so There's she no is kind of a representative yeah, yeah. She's kind of a representative of this more objective voice looking at these things. And she works as an expert witness, which means that she goes to court during custody cases to be to to specifically talk about her research in order wow. to make the case that like, no, this isn't an unhealthy situation. And, you know, I've evaluated what's going on in the home and it, it looks like this is healthy. And, and according to my research, you know, this kid is, is fine. So she's doing good work. Unfortunately, there's so much more need. There's just so much more need. And it's really hard with custody cases specifically because they, they don't get pushed through to appeals very often because often people would rather pay out money in order to ensure that they're going to be able to see their kids still Mm -hmm. rather than try to push it and risk maybe I won't see my kid if I push it. So that's why custody law tends to not move forward because there's not a lot of precedents that get put on the books because, right. because of that, because people would rather be able to ensure that they can see their kid um, rather than risk not for the sake of social progress. Um, I just wanted to end on, uh, I just think your book is so valuable to anyone who needs to do some self-examina- self-examination, which is everyone, which is usually everyone, to define <laughs> to define what they're looking for. I mean, I can't recommend your book enough, regardless of what you think you're looking for or you're confused about what you're looking for. I think it's awesome for that. But can you leave us with like one or two tips of of beginning that work if that's something you're wanting to explore? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So the first tip is going to be wrapped up in me plugging all my own stuff. Do it. <laughs> um, do it. <laughs> but, uh, but the broader tip is to educate yourself. Um, and so, of course, I'd recommend my own book. I'd recommend my podcast, Multiamory. But I'd also recommend different perspectives as well. There's, there's 
unfortunately, several books out there that are fantastic um, for providing different perspectives on this experience. So educate yourself is the first tip. And then my second tip would be to connect to community. Um, so that means either finding an online community, you know, there's places like, there's a subreddit on Reddit for polyamory. There's plenty of Facebook groups. You probably have a Facebook group that's a local group to your city or to your state of people who are polyamorous or non-monogamous. So you can connect to a community online, and then from there, often you can connect to your community offline. You can find local meetup groups, or sometimes, you know, FetLife will have munches, just places where you can go to meet people in person, even if you're still not sure. It can still be so helpful to meet people in person, to talk about their experiences, so you can see what it's like for people to see all the very different ways that people are doing this, and to have people to reach out to for support and to ask questions. Um, you know, when if you hit some stumbling blocks along the way. So yeah, so I think those would be the two most important things that I would encourage people to do. Awesome. This has been amazing. Thank you so Thanks much for, for talking with us. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for all the wonderful, hard-hitting questions. <laughs> we try. We try. <laughs> uh, well, this was fabulous it was Thanks it was for... really cool to meet you via yeah. computer and technology across, yeah. across yeah. the world across the planet pretty <laughs> cool <laughs> yeah um thanks for listening as always clams you can uh, find us on social media instagram twitter reach out if you got a question comment concern welcome to the clam bake it's the opposite of a sausage fest just a couple of vaginas What's a creative podcast network?